Gavin. Hey, Louie. We're back in the nighttime. Ooh, in yes. Our, in our natural state. I was going to say, this is this is my normal habitat. <laughs> I, I, the funny thing is, is I spent part of this weekend cleaning up this room, but literally this angle mm. is the same. So right. you can't tell. <laughs> I, all I do is push all my mess off camera. Like there's a <laughs> mountain of clothes. The bed is fake made. Like the other side is not. It's fine. <laughs> Just um, one half. It's just one half, and I'm, I'm being presentable for all of our um, wonderful um, uh, viewers. But anyway, hi everyone, welcome to the Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast where we take a film subject <laughs> such as an actor, director, or a mini genre. We take two weeks, we watch as much as we can, and we talk all about its history, and then we send it all back to you, and we tell you what we like and what we don't like. Yeah, the reviews, in fact, are mixed. Um, we are not alone. Yet again, we have a wonderful, wonderful guest um, please welcome to the stage a filmmaker, Benjamin Myers. Ben, thank you so much for being here. It's great to be with you guys. I'm really excited about this. I'm going to mix up the reviews. We're going to do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, we met Ben at the Bowery Film Fest last year, um, which was like a fever dream <laughs> Yeah. On, on our end. I don't know how it was for you. <laughs> no, it was, it was walking into some sort of Lower East Side Alice in Wonderland situation. It was yeah. great. It was, the music yeah. was great. It was sick. And then I like stalked you guys and I was like, I got to do this, you know? Right, right, right. It was um, me and Gavin, I think by the end we we're exhausted, but it was super fun to, uh, you know, watch a lot of interesting, weird, off the deep end, um, just a ton of variety of stuff. The music videos were great. The, the music, you're right, was really excellent at the at the party. We were just like, everyone was like, Louis, Gavin, get off. We just want the <laughs> yes. band to play. You guys was did a, a lot great job, that. though. You guys, you guys like brought the energy. You guys kept the focus from all the wild banshees like floating around. There, and, and there were wild banshees, um, but. It, it's been about six months since or five months since the festival. And you've had your film Zero Method. I know you've worked on other things since then, but you've had your film Zero Method in like one billion film festivals since then. It's uh, going really well. It's going good so far. Actually, we just got into uh, speaking of kind of like sideshow freak show moments. We just got into the Coney Island uh, Film Festival. So we'll be in that the weekend of May 5th. And it, uh, it's also going to be in New York Cinefest. So we've got kind of like a back to back thing. So if you're in Brooklyn, you can catch us there. And if you're in Manhattan, you can catch us there downtown. But yeah, awesome. Zero, Zero Method's been been doing its rounds for sure. Awesome. That's amazing. That's so cool. We are excited to have you here. Before we dive into this episode and why we are here today, we have a little bit of old business. Um, first, uh, we asked you guys to go online and vote for your favorite James Spader film. Last episode, we had the wonderful uh, Quitoya on. And um, my God, that was a surprisingly <laughs> sexy episode. I don't know. I, I wasn't terribly familiar with James Spader's oeuvre, but um, I'm erect. <laughs> almost. Oh, my God. <laughs> almost every social video I have made that I've posted on TikTok has been flagged for mature oh. content. Oh, and my I'm God. Like, There's no new. I've had to like, yeah. you know, uh, attest everyone and be like, no, there's no, no nudity here. Just James Spader's presence alone, too yeah, sexy. Too, too sexy much. for TikTok. Um, but okay, so we asked you guys to vote and hear the results. Um, in last place was White Palace. That was Katoya's uh, pick with 10%. Um, really neck and neck for a second and third. We have Sex Lies and Videotape at 24%. Crash, which was Gavin's pick at 26%. And my pick, Secretary, came out on top with 38%. I don't know. I feel like it's been years since I've won a fucking poll. <laughs> so I'm taking it and running with it, babe. Um, overall though, like 
just the sexiest pull. All those movies yeah. are uh, very charged sexually, but only in that um, spader way where it's like kind of weird. Um, but uh, yeah, what an excellent, excellent episode. Uh, ben, do you have? Are you a James Spader fan? Do you have any any movies that you really love from him? You know, I'm just going to slide in and say, like, I just caught, like, a run of his on The Office on reruns. Yeah. And I was like, what a gift. Like, that yes. show just keeps on coming. And I was like, what a, what a surprise, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to go with his whole season run on The Office. It's Because TV is movies these days. Movies is TV. So... I'm just gonna go it, it's Very funny true. one of the comments we got on tiktok about when we posted that we were doing a james spader episode was um the office ruined him for me <laughs> so <laughs> wow hot takes the reviews they're mixed here baby. yeah i was like okay well not for everyone <laughs> um that's hilarious uh gavin i believe we have another review we do uh we received a five-star review i haven't said this in a while because i was really Last year, I had this lofty goal of trying to get 100 podcast reviews on Apple Podcasts before the end of the year, and it did not happen. So I was like, you know what? I'm just not going to mention it for a while. Maybe people are tired. But if you could, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating, write us a little review like this one we just received earlier this week. It's by E. Cherko, and it says, I love it so much! <laughs> Uh, this podcast is always a total joy to listen to. I really respect the dedication that Gavin and Louie put into each episode. I always learn something new or get a nudge to watch something I should have watched by now. I love the idea of a nudge because sometimes it's just us pushing. Yeah. <laughs> G- G- Gavin is just like, he's, it's, it's very mean girls. You're a pusher. Yeah. He's a I'm pusher. Like, uh, <laughs> why have you not watched this yet? Right. right you idiot. Uh, but no, th- <laughs> thank you so much for writing in. Um, that really is the name of the game. I mean, even for me, I think today's episode um, is going to be a very good example of that because a lot of these movies, I'm just like, probably not for me, but I'm glad that I got around to them because they're, I think there's always value in, um, you know, pushing your boundaries uh, and seeing like what's out there. So thank you for that lovely note. Um, we hope everyone kind of gets those friendly nudges and is like, you know what, maybe I should go watch this weird sex movie with James Bay. Yeah. If, uh, and just bringing it back to the poll, like all four of those are great. So like yes. watch any of those. So if you haven't seen White Palace, do yeah. it up. Oh, please. Get out the lotion. Yeah. Enjoy. <laughs> Not the lotion, Gavin. <laughs> Disgusting. Um, before we uh, before we move away from all business, just to mention for all our Patreon friends. Um, and if you're not on Patreon, maybe you should because we have a bonus episode out now. Uh, Gavin sat down and talked with Toya. Um, I don't know, Gavin, if you want to. Yes, uh, I, I got to sit down with Katoya Murray, who was our guest from last episode. She's the co-author of TCM Underground's book. And it is a just an amazing resource. It's 50 films of, in the underground that you haven't seen or may have seen and it's an in-depth analysis of them and it and it really runs the gambit from you know david cronenberg's the brood to xanadu like there's a lot of movies that we have talked about specifically in here and so i i think that's what's fun about this show too is the idea of much like e Cherko was saying you know that we're giving you ideas of things that you've maybe not seen and and hopefully that you you should see i find i find value in almost all films so you know Absolutely. Why not? Why not take the chance and and enjoy some of those? But uh, yeah, that that's a really great interview. It's about a thirty minute interview, and you can go on Patreon and find that. But also, we put up a poll to determine our next subject. Yes, and it would appear this is a poll that we did. Uh, three options were Debbie Reynolds, Vivica A. Fox, and Goldie Hawn, and it looks like just by a hair, 
Goldie Hawn has won. Wow. Yeah, so our next subject will be Goldie Hawn. By the way, fun thing that I did not know on Patreon, I know how everyone voted. Oh. I know I know you, Goldie Heads. I see you. I see you. Uh, no, that's really exciting. It's going to be so much fun. And uh, I can't wait to... I, I think there's a lot of blank spots for me in her career. Um, you can only you can only watch... Shampoo. Does, uh, oh, shampoo so many yeah, times. Shampoo so many times. I was going to say First Wives Club. Like, oh, you can only... Uh, you could just... 50 times and you're just like, okay, I know her. I, I, know, I know. I know very well. Um, excellent. Okay. Ben, please let everyone know who are we talking um, about today and why have you brought them to us? Oh my God. Okay. So, you know, generally known as the Cohen brothers, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Mm-hmm. Um, they are relatively prolific filmmakers. They are partners, directing and producing partners, co-writing partners, uh, they are perennial indie filmmakers. Uh, actually, they, there was an interview they did where they, they turned to each other shortly after they won the Oscar in their discussion. And they were like, I guess we're the establishment now. Yes. You know? <laughs> so I, I have brought them to your doorstep as humble offerings. I, I will I will preface this. I appreciate you guys taking me up on this, you know, looking at your list. And, you know, being a writer director myself, like getting in that. Sp- I'm also an actor. I'm, I'm in this Project Zero method. Um, but uh, these guys, their films have had a pretty big impact on me, but I will tell you in, in reviewing these and always as my relationship with the Coen brothers films, I finally settled on this word for them going through this process. They are confounding. They are, Mm. they're a little, they're, they're mysterious. They're really hard to pin down. I always find that I need multiple watches with them to really absorb them. I won't say frustrating. It's confounding is the word. It's 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 very difficult for me to settle on them. So I have humbly like like a like a cat with a little mouse. I've humbly <laughs> brought this to your doorstep as we explore this crazy world. And the other thing too is like if if you know if I wasn't gonna, uh, you guys were kind enough to say, hey Ben, you know you can pick the subject here if you wish. And while it's always great to watch actors mature and grow and change and find their homes, um, these guys are interesting as as uh, from a director point of view because they really create this universe. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of, you know, you could think like, you know, uh, you know, a Christopher Nolan, you know, Spencer, you could style, you know, of course. But these guys have created a whole universe and space where all the characters, all the point of view is aligned and they're less defined by where they put the camera or necessarily the genres that they tell in but about the themes that they work in. And I am a director who always starts with theme. And I don't mean to be so esoteric about it. You know, I don't mean to be <laughs> so heady. I'm not going to write like a whole freaking thesis about the matter. But I mean, they come from an intellectual standpoint, but they yeah. make you laugh and they make you cry. So that's the kind of filmmaker that I strive to be deeply thoughtful, but also you can, you can, they exist on one level where you can enjoy it. You, you it's, a, it's a show. They give you um, a lot of magic tricks. But then there's layers and layers and layers to them and deep meditation. So that's them in a little bit of a nutshell from my point of view and why I was interested in them and why I thought, hey, there, it, somebody's got to find some, in this mixed review baskets of the Corn <laughs> Brothers universe. Somebody's got to find something that they love because they really have a whole variety. Of totally. Totally. Gavin, I, you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Coen Brothers. Oh, yes. Had you seen all of the films? I had seen all except for, oh goodness, I think there was, I can't even, yeah, I guess I had. I guess, yeah, yeah. I, I, guess, like, I guess. And yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, I had. Uh, I, I had not seen their short film from Parish Atem, 
Uh, wow. Just because I don't wow. really want to watch that movie, but uh, <laughs> but I did watch it for this, and so and it was a good short film. So I was like, okay, well, I'm wrong. I I, um, I, I was very much lacking. I was like. So I have seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And I have seen, I dated a guy from Minnesota who hadn't seen Selena. And so I watched Selena with him, or he watched Selena with me, and then I watched Fargo with him. And Aww. that's cultural exchange. Yeah, you're um, sharing culture. I don't, know that I don't know that that's a fair trade. I feel like someone lost out in, in that one. But, okay, but well, it's... it was me because Selena is an excellent film, first of all. I love uh, Selena too, so I. Uh, um, yeah. But it, yeah, I, I will uh, admit early that there was a, and like you said, I think Ben, that's a really good point. Like these are not uh, laid back movies; these no. are lean in movies. And like you mentioned, you know, probably second watches are uh, beneficial. Um, I did not have the time, but uh, you know, it. This was like a rough. Uh, like you said, not frustrating watch. It's just, you know, this is not like I, I put on Hail Caesar being like, OK, a fun light comedy. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> well, <laughs> so a lot to get through, um, but I'm excited to get into it there. I, what, what I will say that I do love right off the bat is they work with so many good people like uh, seeing John Goodman do anything I'm like, yes, <laughs> Holly Hunter. Absolutely. Francis McDormand, of course. Um, so yeah, I think this one's going to be a wild ride. So everyone buckle up. And with that, why don't we get into the rewind? Joel and Ethan Cohen are, were born in uh, a suburb of Minneapolis. Uh, Joel is the elder. He is, um, was born November 29th, 1954. So he is 68 and Ethan was born September 21st, 1957. So he is 65. So like just to get it out of the way, I, I've heard and I've, I saw some interviews and it feels like there's different people say different things like Holly Hunter gave an interview and she was like, oh, no, they're doing everything together. Um, yeah. e there's like a, a time period where only um, Joel's name was put as a director because of like guild nonsense. Ethan was always like th the producer. Um they write to, they they do write everything together. I th I believe the last movie um they've made uh, Tragedy of Macbeth was the first time Ethan has stepped away. Ethan now is a theater yeah. girl, so good for him. Though he did he did make a documentary about Jerry Lee Lewis, which I think is only in festivals currently. Their mother Rena was an art historian at St. Cloud State University and their father Edward was also a professor. So a lot of academics in the house. Yes. Um it's funny, I found an interview with them where they were talking about how, um, you know, they're both older now, both their parents are gone, <laughs> but they were they were talking specifically about Inside Lewin Davis, which we'll get there, but they were like, there was a lot of people around our house, and they were all insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> our parents were both academics, and um, so a lot of the people that we knew were insufferable. <laughs> um, the <laughs> Ethan, you just made yourself a lot of friends in the academy. <laughs> and they were like, maybe we shouldn't say that, but like, that's how we felt. And I think that it's funny that you mentioned early on, you know, early in this that like you're not trying to be too esoteric about it. I feel like there's almost not a way to not be esoteric about it because that's we've covered a lot of directors on the show. Directors are not our go to, uh, obviously, because a lot of podcasts do that. And we're kind of like a one-on-one -on -one college course for people when they come to us. But, uh, but you know, I was thinking back on some of the directors we've covered, you know, like Mira Nair, she's, she's really, 
she's a humanist or like Pedro Almodovar is a romantic and and John Waters is a provocateur. The, the Coen brothers are academics. They're academics. Yeah. Their films are laced with references and deeper meanings. And it's anything from like Woody Woodpecker to the Torah. Like it's, it's, you know, Philip Marlowe, uh, Christopher Marlowe, like it's all the Marlowe's and it's, <laughs> it's just funny to, to realize like, this is what they grew up around. Right. And so they, it really reminds me of that Ethan Hawke quote from last year where Ethan Hawke was like, there's really no such thing as high art and low art. You know, and that's I really feel like a lot of their stuff is the synthesis of that, where they're like, yeah, yes. like it's a Bugs Bunny joke where someone gets hit in the balls. But also that guy's going to quote Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> they can get away with all this stuff because they also entertain. They never right. ju- they, they never. For- it's not sometimes it's leaving laughing. Sometimes it's plugging on your heartstrings, but they never for- they never forget to honor their audience within their point. So I got respect them for that. Um, they also have an older sister, Deborah. She's a psychiatrist now. Um, the family, they, they are of the Jewish faith. Um, um, and you see that a lot in their films. It doesn't get any more cliche than like they were young kids. They, you know, uh, I think, I believe Joel saved his money from uh, mowing lawns to buy a Super 8 camera and they started filming, you know, making short films and, and they were just like inspired through, uh, movies they saw on TV. Um, they were watching Italian it's it's so funny because the you know everybody always talks about how they like went to and they did say that there was like a theater near them that showed basically like italian neorealist movies and then you know like fucking tarzan films yeah but but also they also talk a lot about like you said television television yeah. was a huge that was the way that they saw movies back then there was this guy in minneapolis named mel jazz who had a matinee movie it was the afternoon movie and it was uh, very different then than now now you have all these choices but here as joel says he was the curator if you wanted to watch movies you watched what mel jazz had programmed and he would have you know hercules movies but he would also have uh, you know, eight and a half. He'd bought probably the Joe <laughs> Levine catalog, so he had all the Italian movies. So that was uh, kind of our high-low introduction to movies. They were all on television, interrupted by commercials. Before cable, you you watch what was on. You right, someone what else was curating you. it for you, you know. <laughs> the local television station was curating your experience and fashioning your taste, I guess. And how old the movies you watch is is kind of a function of how late you're willing to stay up. And it was funny, I was reading an interview with them from around the time they did Hail Caesar, uh, which actually kind of unlocked something about Hail Caesar for me, which was a movie the first time I saw it I didn't like, but now I'm actually kind of a fan, uh, was that a lot of the movies made in the 50s at the end of the studio era, when they would have been growing up seeing them on TV, are bad. <laughs> are bad. They're like, they're like Quo Vadis... The biblical epic is not a good movie, and it's just all studio interference. Or like, uh, what was the other one? They they used the Cary Grant movie, That Touch of Mink, which we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And they're like, these were bad movies. But yeah. when you're a kid, and it's the only thing on, you know, this Perfect. was before you're, Cable. You're obsessed. You're like, yeah, you're. this is amazing. Well, there is that line in Hail Caesar when the lead character, Maddox, played by Josh Brolin, is being uh, courted by this guy from Lockheed Martin and they're having these meetings and he's kind of being critical of like the Hollywood industry and he's like coming up something more serious. And he basically says, Hey, what do you think is going to happen when everybody has a TV? It's set in 1951, I think. And it's like, well, you know, 
okay, that that movie is a pre-pandemic movie, but like, I mean, call it like you see it, here we are now, and the studios are really struggling with, you know, what is the format? How do we get people back into the theaters? So <laughs> they really do grow up uh, instilling this love of film and, and filmmaking as children. Um, zoom forward ahead a little bit. Uh, Joel goes off to NYU to go to film school. Um Shortly after Ethan goes to Princeton to study philosophy because I don't know, he wanted to be the smart one. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Joel finishes his time at NYU and he um, he's like working as a production assistant on these like super indie films. Um, I believe he was like a production assistant for Sam Raimi on The Evil Dead. Yeah, he was, was assistant editor, actually. Yeah, I was working in New York as an assistant editor on mostly very low-budget horror films, the best of which was Sam's movie, The Evil Dead. And Sam had essentially financed the movie independently by going around and soliciting private investments from a very small amounts of money from business people and doctors and dentists in Detroit and cobbled together enough money to make that movie, which was probably about $100,000 when he started. I'm not sure. And so we looked at that and we thought, well, we could probably do that. We forgot to mention that they also edit all of their own films. Like they, yes. they, they are jacks of all trades. They, like, they they edit their films under the pseudonym Roderick Janes. They have created an entire backstory for Roderick Janes. This is like kind of the 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 beginning of like the professional like you know um, Joel specifically is learning how this professional um, life as a filmmaker works um he very briefly moves to austin to go to ut for grad school and um via sam and his um advice and being like you just gotta hustle to like make (laughs) get investors to make your movies but he does graduate um and in 1984 they make their first film blood simple um and they said it was like brutal like you know they had they said it in austin in texas because they knew that they could have friends uh be extras for free and um th- they said like they shopped it around to everyone in hollywood and everyone was like oh my god thank you so much no <laughs> their thought process was cheap horror is really popular right now and so everybody's always been like oh this is a noir movie this is a noir script they're always like no this is this is a horror movie we were making cheap horror movie we were making evil dead but in our the way that we make movies also just a real quick sidebar sam raimi read the script for blood simple and was like "Mm, they're not gonna make it (laughs) (laughs) a vote of confidence from a a pal i mean surprise like when it is made um cute fun story apparently they had wanted holly hunter to be the lead but she was doing a play in New York, and she said, "Oh, you should look at my roommate. LOL, it's Francis McDormand." <laughs> um, and and that's like the beginning of Francis and their um, you know time together. Joel and her eventually get married. <laughs> they are still yeah. Married. I was gonna say she clearly hated working with them, and she yeah. clearly hates Joel. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I think that's a beautiful thing because I mean, honestly, so my wife is a professional editor. Uh, she and I share an editing credit on Zero Method. She's edited most of my films as soon as she figured out what that was all about. And <laughs> I, you know, I gotta say, it's like you find people, and they they do this obviously with actors, but they do mm-hmm. this with DPs. They they yeah. do, well, they both themselves as editors, but you know they 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 find people that work right and you you find your sensibility you find your agreement and if you're going to find that in art 
art and love are very close together. You yeah. know, I mean, it, it's not nepotism. This is a, a philosophy of how you go through life, I think. Well, and, beautiful. and yeah, that is beautiful. And like the to add to that, like Ethan also married an editor like Ethan, Trisha Cook has worked on their film. She started as an assistant editor and she actually has a, a co-editing credit on a lot of their movies later on. So like, yeah, that I mean, when you're working that close with people, I'm an editor. So like, I get it. Like mm-hmm. you're trapped in a room with a lot of people for a very long time. <laughs> Um, okay, so I'm not saying your marriage is Stockholm syndrome. I'm just lightly <laughs> implying it. That's a light implication. Um, Blood Simple really um, starts like the language of the Cohen aesthetic vibe. You know, they whether or not they wanted it to be a film noir movie, like it <laughs> that it's like this. Everyone's like, oh, the Renaissance of film noir because uh, Blood Simple is like a huge hit. It's like a cult classic now. Um, it's a story about a, a bar owner <laughs> hires a private detective to kill his wife and a lover. It's very tense. It's very taut. It's very slick and sleazy. Um, it's, but it's, but it's also really inventive too. You know, they start working with, speaking of working with people that they really like, you know, this was their first film with Barry Sonnenfeld as a, a DP. And I was watching it this time because I've seen it many times before, but I was really just focusing on construction this time because it's kind of a simple movie. And, I, you know, I it's wasn't... A tiny movie, tiny small t- movie. It's really tiny movie. And I was really impressed with a lot of the ideas that Sonnenfeld had. And I think you see it later in his work, too. Like, he eventually stops being their DP because he goes to direct The Addams Family. And there's this amazing scene in Blood Simple that's just the camera tracking down this bar and... As it passes a person passed out on the bar, it moves over them and then continues on the bar. And I love that it's a very reflexive nature that reminds you like, oh, you're also watching a movie like you're like it's inviting you to be like, oh, but also this is fantasy. Yeah, Um, I think that visual language just continues on and continues to grow as we go through. Um, I'll, I'll say I had never seen Bloodstone before. Um, what a great little movie though. Like yeah. it is true crime wishes. Okay. Like it's just, it's so good. The, the, the thing that jumped out at me and I had not tragically enough, and this is going to break the hearts of all of the film school boys who just cream themselves over the Coen <laughs> brothers, uh, which, you know, I try not to associate myself with that. Well, that's, I was going to say, we're doing our best to like avoid all the film broness of uh, in doing this episode, <laughs> but it's kind of hard, but I, I, you know, that's one of those things like you, you don't get to pick your audience. There's a great quote and I know we're not at the Big Lebowski yet but there's a great quote that Joel Cohen said about the Big Lebowski which is that movie has more of an enduring fascination for other people than it does for us mm. and I feel like that happens a lot with their work depending on which film you're talking about yeah well yep. so also certainly if you're a stoner too I mean like yeah. that's, that's gotta be <laughs> but the thing the thing that struck me about Blood Simple like it just smacks me in the face and it's in the first few minutes uh you know was Marty is sitting outside of his bar and he's just stewing in anger and, um, you know, he's staring off into the incinerator and there's this like buzzing like fly killer trap. And right at the moment in the scene where there's this tension, it's the, the, the fly gets zapped right there. And you, and you just think to yourself, oh, my God, he's going to somebody's going to die here, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. And it was it's, it's, it's so simple, but it's like a simple little magic trick. And it started for me this realization of putting these pieces together of a, a a sort of motif that they used, you know, film school or uh, a sort of <laughs> motif that they use of like 
communicating their messages and metaphors and having moments through animals. Like there's yeah. animals oh, yeah. all over their all over the films. And they kind of they kind of go uh, back to those those fly moments. They use the fly and the bugs things throughout. But like you know, cat and inside woman Davis, the owl in um, Buster Scruggs, etc. I'm like. What a unique thing to do. And also it's kind of ballsy because like if you haven't worked with animals in production, like <laughs> yeah. and later on when they're just like, screw it, we'll just CGI the animal, forget it. But yeah, like, yeah. you know, that's just like, a, it's an interesting theme. And it's just, but it just jumped out at to me right away that that motif of using animals to communicate yeah. theme and, and and just like bury things and like kind of like what's going to happen next in 1987 their next film is raising arizona um they do like write a couple of things here and there i don't know if we need to talk about this stuff but they do write crime wave which was directed by sam raimi i didn't watch this it's real bad know. okay great loving <laughs> moving, moving on, on. <laughs> um but 1987's raising arizona this is something i had seen um i watched it as an undergrad i remember loving it a lot i still love it a lot Talk about Looney Tunes. Yeah. Like, it's a bright fantasia of crime and mishap. Uh, it, it's funny. Their first three films are are almost in conversation with each other because mm. Raising Arizona is written in, in a way that's the direct tonal opposite of Blood Simple. And yes. Miller's Crossing, which comes after, is also written in a direct tonal opposition to Raising Arizona. And I think part of that is, is they didn't want to become pigeonholed into a specific type, which I mean, the, these films sort of... have become, they become like divining rods for themselves. Right. They're, they're, they're trying to get a little closer to what exactly they are. You know, that's smart. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, they because it does feel like wide swings until it eventually sort of works into the middle and vibrates at the right frequency. Yeah, I would say Raising Arizona probably is one of the like more like actually like laugh out loud like yeah they are they are this is like really to the left Looney Tunes bonkersy like stealing a baby um I I believe they wrote this for Holly Hunter like the idea for her character came first um they basically wanted a cop who's who couldn't have a baby so they decided to steal one I'm sorry honey it just didn't work out well, maybe it didn't work out well they. They started crying, and they were all over me. It was kind of horrifying, honey. Let me in. Of course they cried, baby. Cried. Well, I know that now. Come on, honey. We better leave. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby high. They got more than they can handle. And I believe this is the first um, cha- the first time we see John Goodman in one of their films, yeah. who yes. we'll see over and over and over again. Uh, it's it's just, it's Looney Tunes. It, that, that, that's just like, you know... Um, the screwball is not 100% my speed. I like the I like the comedy that they land in later on. I will admit, but but you know, talking about mixed tones, the ending crushed yeah. me. You know yeah. what I mean? I was actually about to write that film off. So like, I give them a lot of credit for it because they're they're finding unique things. Nick Cage, I think Nick Cage is a great actor. I don't think that was that's not one of their people. I mean, obviously they famously yeah. had kind of dis- disagreements and stuff like that, but like. Just it just all of their leads, all of their leads are so they're not all the same, but they live in sort of a same kind of universe and some or they get them. They get yeah. them is the thing. And obviously Nick Cage didn't. But even though even though the comedy wasn't always there, that's just my, my, my particular taste. The ending where they have this he has this dream about them growing old together, which you know is not going to come true, but it's a gift to the audience. I, I, I was watching it with my wife and we looked at each other. I was like, why did they do that? Why did they do that to me? Why did they do this to me? They, this they do, a comedy. 
they do love a good dream. They do yes. love, you know, talking about dreams, showing dreams. And it, it, it's interesting, too, because I, I feel like that's the sort of ending you don't often see from the Coen brothers. And it almost feels like this was early enough that they were still um, experiencing a little uh, youthful their, hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. A little more hopeful, because I, I do think what's also you know, we're going to get off this film and onto another film. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about a lot of their work is a lot of their characters have a cyclical nature in terms of their arcs, both plot wise and emotional wise, which is they start one place and they end in the same exact place, which I think is why the Odyssey fascinates them so much. And they also said, you know, one of the biggest inspirations to them is Wizard of Oz and that they've, Mm. they've, constantly been making wizard of oz and the only film that they've actually really referenced it was oh brother where art thou but they're like all of our films are wizard of oz well i remember once when we were doing fargo being out on a road with steve buscemi and peter stormar and they're getting a body off a road and i sort of looked at ethan and said haven't we shot this scene before (laughs) because we did we did it in blood simple by virtue of the fact that we made both movies yeah but from a conscious point of view in terms of you know, returning to a similar aesthetic or any of those issues, to be quite honest, uh, uh, you know, to whatever extent we can, we try and avoid it. And it's only despite our best efforts that we get pulled back into things that and, and start, and you know, repeat certain things. They've they've said like, you know, they don't know how to write like a three act, you know, like traditional screenplay. Like, and and you're right. A lot of these movies are desperate people who do something out of character or uh, something extreme in the hopes to get to to this new place, they realize that the price is too high or the universe conspires against this person. And they just, and now they're just trying to get back to like normal or, you know, um, a lot of people get uh, their comeuppance in their, in these movies. I I think that's why it's smart, Ben, that you said that, you know, you, you know, it's not true at mm. the end of Raising Arizona. Not to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, but like it's a very they don't hope- get to keep the baby. <laughs> yeah, it's a very hopeful note that you're like, oh, well, you know, we'll all have our dreams, I guess. Uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> next up, we, uh, the third in this early trifecta uh, of Dividing Rods is Miller's Crossing, which to me is uh, the most ambitious of the three. And it is like a straight down the middle uh, mystery. Like it's it's inspired by Dashiell Hammett's novels, which we t- talked about recently in our Who Done episode. Um, it's inspired by Road Harvest and the Glass Key. Uh, it, Miller's Crossing is... A twist, a double twist, a backhand spring, <laughs> uh, and and but it's like you can tell that they clearly love the genre of uh, mystery. Um, you know, again, outsized personalities. Um, we get we in the introduction of John Turturro into the universe. Uh, um, yes, he's w- arrived for us. <laughs> yes, one of the MVPs, I would say. Yes, uh, of of the Cohen universe. Um, while they're making Willis Crossing or while they're writing it, they kind of get stuck on it. They said it was a hard uh, one to write. They go off and write another fucking movie, yeah. <laughs> um, Barton Fink, which they wrote for John Turturro. Um, apparently, they're fast writers. They wrote it in like two weeks. I believe they said Ethan is the typist because he types faster. Yeah. Uh, and and they, they've often joked that uh, 
you know, when it comes to their, their like adapted movies that Ethan types and Joel holds open the book. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, they finish Barton Fink. They come back, finish Miller's Crossing. Um, Miller's Crossing uh, comes up first. Um, and again, like they're kind of just hitting all the right notes. Like The indie world is kind of like on fire for them. They are becoming just the consistent dark humor um I would also say, like, this is the first... No, well, not first, because Blood Simple has violence. But, like, violence is also a big part yeah. of a lot of their movies. There's not really a lot of violence in Raising Arizona, but... Uh, it is, but it's cartoony. You know, right. that's a, it's like literally John Goodman picking up Nicolas Cage and spinning him. But, like... Right. I, I don't uh, they, they blow up the guy with, like, a... Grenade. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, but, and, like... And here's the thing about violence in a Coen Brothers movie or something that I really like outside of when they're doing it for comedic effect. It's very real. It's not very weird. They're, they're they not, execute on it very well. Oh, uh, yeah. They're, they're not doing violence like they're I, it's rare that you'll watch a Coen Brothers movie or at least for me and be like, wow, this is a glorification of violence. This is a glorification of guns this is a glorification of, you know, bullets hitting people, people blowing up because it's so brutal and and so graphique that it is brutal like i mean i don't yeah. i don't think it's glorified but it is jarring it's <laughs> i i was a lot of the movies i was like oh my god but it's so realistically uh rendered and executed uh that it's just like all of, all of their their violence i would say it's a it's a gag to them and i mean that mm. in the purely like filmmaking sense where it's like anything that you're trying to sort of make happen um, and that you're just like, here, this is a set piece. It's a special effects. And yeah. I think it was George Lucas who said, like, all movies are special effects. I mean, it's 24 frames a second, still frames passing before you to magically create something that's moving, that's, that's happening, you know? So it's like violence to them is an opportunity to showcase something in a, in a very realistic way and have it serve something. But it, yeah, it's not video game violence. It's like, right. it's the dark violence of the real world. Um, I want to do a quick shout out to Marsha Gay Harden in this movie, yeah. who is gorgeous. And she's, I think, the only woman in this film. They are so evenly matched. Yeah. And it's yeah. such a great opportunity of having this masculine energy and feminine energy just pound right against each other and being like so evenly matched. I freaking loved it. Who's the war paid for? Go home, dry out. You don't need a for Leo, believe me. He already thinks you're the original Miss Jesus. What the hell's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? Afraid people might get the right idea? Leo's got the right idea. I like him. He's honest and he's got a heart. Then it's true what they say. Opposites attract. Do me a favor, mind your own business. Barton Fink comes out next. Barton Fink is a movie that I think, and <laughs> not to get controversial, but I do think that the Coens are also a little bit navel gazy. I think a lot of their movies are like inside baseball type stuff. They love making movies about movies. Yeah. Um, Barton Fink is literally about a writer who um, he he can't take a compliment. Like everyone loves his plays and he's like, no, it's not good. Um, and they say, come to Hollywood. Um, you can make a bunch of money and, you know, make whatever you want. Um, he's baffled by Hollywood and what they want. This, this movie is bizarre and... Uh, not real and like you don't know what's real john it's a freaking fever dream yes yes and it's a hard movie to like i i I, I, I like it (laughs) i I, I like i like i like the film and it took me i've seen the film many times um many times 
But I think like it, it grows on you because at the beginning you're like, where is this going? <laughs> yeah. And then and then once it gets there, you're like, oh fuck, this is crazy. And it it um it's bizarre. I mean, bizarre is just like the best word I can think of because the walls are literally melting. Yeah, and you know there's fire everywhere. The mosquitoes, the imagery, like it is a very heady movie. Um, but again, like you can tell, like th- these two brothers are like writing. It feels very personal. Like they're yeah. go, they literally are writing about a man who has writer's block while they are having writer's block for uh, Miller's Crossing. It's um, very self-critical, and I mean, yeah. I think the I will say I think when I say the movie is hard to like, it's because the lead character is hard to like. They have yes. more, yes. they have very charming leads from time to time, and it's not just about right. the actors having charisma. You're watching Barton Fink. It's like I don't think I yeah. like I don't like this guy, but yeah. I kind of like the movie. What the hell? Right. Yeah, uh, and and I think part of it is, I mean, that like, yeah, you're definitely not supposed to like him. I mean, he's he's kind of a fraud in his own sense. Like he he's this writer who's writing these stories for the everyman. Like he's constantly saying, you know, he's the the voice of the everyman, and you have this John Goodman character who like is maybe a serial killer, is maybe also the devil, right? Is, is maybe. Maybe the personification of the hotel that Barton Fink is staying in. I mean, when he sweats, the walls peel. Yeah. You know, the, the, it, but he's the everyman. And he's yeah. the guy that Barton is constantly ignoring. He's constantly telling, you know, I could tell you some stories. Yeah. And Barton's just talking over him. There's a few people in New York, hopefully our numbers are growing, who feel we have an opportunity now to forge something real out of everyday experience. Create a theater for the masses based on a few simple truths, not on some shop-worn abstractions about drama that don't hold true today if they ever did. I I don't guess this means much to you. Hell yeah, I could tell you some stories. And that's the point, that we all have stories. Sometimes it's like, I missed all the things. Other times it's like they fucking hit you over the head with the thing. So, uh, yeah, by, by the way, just real quick to uh, Michael Lerner, who plays the studio head in that movie, who was nominated for Academy Award uh, for Best Supporting Actor, just passed away yeah. today. And so at the age of 81. So kind of kismet that we would be talking about Barton Fink. But and he's, 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 he's great. great. He's great yeah. in that movie. Um Barton Fink wins the Palme d'Or casual um, in 1991. And, and like, you know, you mentioned earlier their, their independent film Darlings. I think it's it, it's sort of lost on people. They don't make their movies for a lot of money. Yes. I think the most they've ever spent on a movie is $40 million or so. I, I might be wrong about that. The, yeah, some of the I, later ones. Yeah, but thir- like th- 30 to 40. I mean, so like the next movie coming up is Hudsucker Proxy. Right. Which was their most expensive movie they made at like 30, 40-ish million dollars. Um, and I even thought, I was like, who are the Coens making like these movies for? And why do people keep letting them make them? And it's because they That's are what I so, said. <laughs> they are so, they are so prepared. Um, we even talked about their process really, but like they, like George Clooney has said, typically you get your sides and you like, you know, say what's happening in the day. He's like, with the Coens, you literally get your sides and each scene has drawings of yeah. exactly like what coverage we're doing today. Um, and so all of their shoots are very lean and tight. They don't like they don't fuck around. They're not like figuring out on the fly. They're very prepared. And so that leads to um, cheaper movie making. And yeah, John Goodman said that on the first day of filming, 
Jeff Bridges called him for Big Lebowski and was like, so when are we going to receive rewrites? And John Goodman laughed and says, there's That's no not, rewriting. Yeah, for, no, did they, nope. yeah, Joel and Ethan Cohen don't rewrite themselves. Can right. I just say, though, about that, like, that idea of economy? Like, and hopefully we're in a tipping point. Uh, for God's sakes, I hope for the sake of my own career, we're in a, hip, uh, we're in a tipping point. <laughs> you cannot make a picture for 30 40 million dollars in hollywood right now that is a dead yeah. zone i mean i mean no. you can make a you can make a sub million dollar picture you can make a, you can make a scrappy little thirty thousand dollar picture and a five hundred thousand dollar picture is possible you can make a three million dollar picture but you cannot that's a very difficult zone to land because once you talk about like getting the names in that you need and the marketing etc cetera, etc cetera, or the kind of movie that you can make today uh for an audience that would get a four quadrant going that the studio would be interested in making and I think that we need to return to a dead zone. And just to just get a little off course when it comes to the business of things, we're seeing a, a Hollywood that is obsessed with giant returns. Yes. Big bank, go go big or go nothing. And this is an executive mentality. This is not a filmmaker mentality. This is about a bottom line corporation mentality. And I think that what Hollywood is hopefully is slowly learning and going to learn that diversification is the future, that if you can find excellent prepared filmmakers who know their craft bottom because it was content is king is what everybody says i say craft is king you can find excellent filmmakers that are prepared that can make smaller budget pictures in this way that find their niche audiences the way that tv creates a niche audience i think that's the future for hollywood and not making giant half a billion dollar and billion dollar gambles why do you think their last two movies you know i I mean joel's movie tragic macbeth went to a streaming service Ballad yeah. Buster Scruggs streaming service because they're yep. the only people that are willing to give that type of budget to a filmmaker, regardless of how proven they are. Obviously, those streaming services love the name of the Coens, sure. but that's that's one of the reasons. Also, on top of that, we've talked many times on the show, too, about spe- specificity is important when it comes to making it. If you're making movies for everyone, they have a tendency to be really bland and not necessarily that enjoyable. And that's exactly what you're talking about, too, is that like the the craft element has to be there, as well as why what Co- the Coens do so well is their movies are really specific. They are totally. really like they are very insular tales that you have to bring yourself to. You have to engage with as an audience member. And I think that's really important as to why they're so successful. I was listening yeah. to a showrunner talk the other day, and they said simply, if you're trying to sell a show that you think can be bought anywhere, you're making the wrong show. Yeah, because this totally. now now in day and age, it's about it's about specificity. It's about niche. So yeah. I mean, maybe they were they were onto something. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, Barton Fink was the first time they also worked with Roger Deakins. Yes, who they end up okay. So we I know mean, the he's name. amazing. He did, yeah, <laughs> <It's> beautiful. <laughs> um, and he ends up collaborating them with them for like the next twenty five years. Like he is what the go to gal. Uh, and does the cinematography for all their movies. Um there's like a I couple mentioned... that he's missed here and there because he's worked on other projects. Skyfall. Right. But, oh. <laughs> which took up like two years of his life. <laughs> but um, but like I mentioned, Hudsucker Proxy was their next film. And so they had they were successful, but they had not made a mainstream really movie that had, you know, really hit big and we kind of put this movie off from our um, Jennifer Jason Lee episode because yeah. it was just coming up. Uh, yeah, we we had to cut it out, unfortunately. I I love. I feel like Hudsucker Proxy is one of the films that people don't think that highly of. I kind of love it. I kind of really love that like very heightened screwball like Hepburn Tracy idiotic uh, <laughs> cartoony 
I love that you have Paul Newman there playing a villain for one of the few times in his career. Yeah, I, I like it's one of those movies that it feels like a musical, like a musical number is going to break out any second and it just never does. And it, it's it looks like Dick Tracy. Um, yeah. It is. Uh, I don't think I liked it as much as you did, but I I love the way it looks. She's probably just a little confused. Confused. Yeah, you know, she's probably one of these fast-talking career gals, thinks she's one of the boys. Probably is one of the boys, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Oh, I'm quite sure I don't know what you mean. You know, probably suffers from one of these complexes they have nowadays. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? She's probably very unattractive and and bitter about it. Oh, is that it? Yeah, she probably dresses in men's clothing, swaps drinks with the guys at the local watering hole, hobnobs with some smooth-talking heel in the newsroom named Biff or Smoocher or... Smitty. Exactly. So 1996 is Fargo. I, I mean, they have so many iconic movies, but I think Fargo is like yeah, pr- pretty close to the top of the mountain. Um, it, it feels so personal. I think, you know, uh, famously, Frances McDormand wins an Oscar for playing Marge, the sheriff. With her, She's pregnant. She's, you know, just a good, a good, a good woman, upstanding citizen. Yeah. Um, a main character who doesn't appear until 40 minutes into the movie. Pretty yeah. cool. William H. Macy who is at the peak of his, like, neurotic powers. Yeah. Uh, William H. Macy, who was basically a nobody at this point, he auditioned five times for this role and then found out that they were getting ready to shoot in New York. So he flew himself all the way to New York to basically be like, you guys are making a mistake if you you don't cast me. He was right. I could not imagine that picture without him, you know? Truly, truly. And I think also, too, with Fargo, like, you start to see something that becomes a staple with them, and that is letting their letting the films be about the the actors doing their work. Like that, you get really interesting kind of quirky performances. Like you come to a Coen's brother film for the performances. What I love is like in a lot of their movies, they the humanity of violence and the humanity of crime. Like it, it's not that people are so fucking smart and get away with things or whatever, or, you know, we're like, especially in Fargo, these are horrible things, but Marge is like, she talks in her accent. Cause that's the way she talks. And like, Oh, right. don't you think like, you know, and there's bodies all around her and, sh- and she's just shooting the shit with her good pal. Who's like her deputy. And, you know, she's not going to let, you know, the darkness of the, the, the world get her down. Um, but it's a very just like human real uh, thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like everyone loves Fargo. There's a whole fucking show that's been made now. Um, they dovetail uh, their work a lot. And I just love that that in Raising Arizona, it was the cop that couldn't get pregnant. And then she's a pregnant cop. And it's just kind of like this little itsy bitsy spidering their way to the next leapfrog yeah. in there next to the way the next puddle pad. Yeah. And, and the, the comedy of this movie is fully just like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. and there's like blood everywhere and they're like, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, uh, for any Reba fans out there, Barbara Jean is in this movie. <laughs> yeah. She's is one she of the, the friends. Yeah, she's one of the one of the girls at the at the bar when she's talking to the she's one of the two sex workers when they're talking to the sex workers. One of them was kind of funny looking. <laughs> yeah, <they're> like <laughs> so one of them is the actual vocal coach on the movie, and then the other is Barbara Jean. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Is there anything else you can tell me about him? No. Like I say, he was funny looking. More than most people, even. What about the other fella? He was a little older. You know, he looked like the Marlboro Man. Oh, yeah? Yeah. But maybe I'm saying that, you know, because he smoked a lot of Marlboros. Uh Uh-huh. You know, like a subconscious type of thing. Oh, yeah, that can happen. 
it won two Oscars. It also won Best Original Screenplay. Um, and like I said, for Francis, um, we're kind of like in the golden era of the Coen brothers because yeah. we get Fargo. Next, we get The Big Lebowski, which becomes like the slacker stony, stoner movie yeah. of like the millennium. Um, again, like they write this for Jeff Bridges and Jeff is like, how'd you know I was a fucking stoner? Yeah. <laughs> People love The Big Lebowski. The Dew, The White Russians. Yeah. It, it's it's very it's fairly rare that like a movie becomes like such a cultural or makes such a big cultural impact, and the Big Lebowski is one of those movies. It's got vibes. It's a vibe. <laughs> vibes. It's got vibes. It, it, it gives Cohen. You know? I it, it's funny. I wasn't gonna rewatch it for this because I feel like I've seen it one billion times. But I memorized I did. right. Yeah, and I was like, I was like, you know what? The worst thing about Big Lebowski is the people who love it. And that's because it's actually a good movie. What it represents is really silly, but like when you watch it, like this is a very sturdy film, and like the music choices and like you can see all these layers of filmmaking and like metaphor and color choice it's it's kind of astonishing because you could just like lean back and like watch this stoner slack or whatever but if you lean in it's like oh the tumbleweed at the beginning is the dude and you know he has his music and the nihilists have their music and like it's it's just every everything is thought out so um for better or worse, The Big Lebowski. And then again, like, they follow it up with another banger with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou in 2000. Um, and, and to be clear, like, all of these movies are big successes, making critical commercial impact. Um, oh Brother, Where Art Thou starring, LOL, George Clooney, who <laughs> at the time was just, like, the hot... I mean, he's still very hot. Great. Um, but, like, as these... Um, as a guy on a chain gang who's um, trying to make his way back home. And it's also casually um, the Odyssey uh, and also music. Uh, Damn and they are musical. Yeah. And, and yeah. they fucking, and they fucking stick the landing. They stick the landing and it's, it's crazy. I I'm, mean, s- I'm sad though, that George Clooney didn't sing the song and they, they, he, George Clooney like recently got, I don't know, like a Kennedy center honors or something of that nature. And uh-huh. like, I think of Miley Cyrus or somebody I performed the song. And I was like, this is kind of cop out because like, I get he was in the movie, but he didn't sing the song, especially yeah. when they go through such an effort later on to like in, inside Lewin Davis, everyone that sings in the movie is singing live. You get these real authentic people. So, okay. I wish, I wish he could have done it. I get why they didn't. I, I, <laughs> I was going to say, if it makes you feel better, he spent weeks practicing and learning and then they, dubbed him so oh, like uh, there's uh, a reason there there's like he recorded it in a studio is, like, there, is, is there some youtube of that out there i want to no i don't think so i don't oh, i have not found they say yeah. george you are so so hot and for yeah. that we thank you so much but um I, god my, doesn't give us two hands you stole from my kin who was fixing to betray us you didn't know that at the time so i borrowed it till i did know that don't make no sense Pete. It's a fool who looks for logic in the chambers of the human heart. Now, what the hell is that saying? Papio Daniels, based on a real senator who, like, eventually became a presidential candidate. And and so there's all these, like, tiny bits of history, as well as, like, you know, the, we mentioned the Odyssey. John Goodman plays the Cyclops in the movie. He gets to just club George Clooney in the face. And... Uh, but then you also get the, the the Ku Klux Klan scene is all like a Wizard of Oz reference. Like it's it's really impressive because I think a lot of the times filmmakers will go for a more obvious reference in a movie and they're not really they find ways of incorporating it and making it their own. Like, you know, when we're talking about Miller's Crossing, there's that scene 
where they do go to try and kill the boss and he shoots one of them in the leg. He's hiding in the bed. He shoots one of them in the leg. And when he falls over, he shoots him in the head. And Tarantino took that and used it in Kill Bill. And when I saw that in Kill Bill, I was like, I know where that's from. But when I'm watching a Coen Brothers movie, I have to really be like, do I know what this is from? Yeah. Like, do I do like I have to like think it's all well, memory palace. Because so many of them can be self-referential. There's right. the prospector story in Buster Scruggs, and it opens yeah. up with this elk kind of standing up in this beautiful picturesque um valley, right? And 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 the the, the elk is CGI, so they can get this just so image. They're actually going somewhere so clear. And I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. I'm watching Buster Scruggs. Okay, great. And then I'm like, okay, let's do Raising Arizona. And then and the front, the interior of the front door of their house on frame right, there is a picture that looks exactly like that. It is, it is this beautiful painted valley with this elk sitting there. I'm like, you sons of bitches. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they kept that in the back pocket. Um, again, oh brother, where thou uh, does gangbusters, all the things. Um, next movie is the man who wasn't there, which doesn't. I mean, it's it's almost like. They peak and then they kind of yeah. like it's, we're on the come down a little bit. The man who wasn't there, uh, black and white, uh, neo noir crime starring um, Billy Bob Thornton. Billy Bob Thornton. I twenty nine. Doris wasn't big on divine worship, and I doubt if she believed in life everlasting. She'd most likely tell you that our reward is on this earth, and bingo is probably the extent of it. Seven. Watch your card, honey. I wasn't crazy about the game, but I don't know. It made her happy. And I found the setting peaceful. Jesus, bingo. Bingo! We're kind of like just over the halfway mark of their filmography. And I'm wondering if you guys think they benefit at this point from their bouncing around. Like, I mean, obviously the experimentation gets them to where they're going, but is this a benefit to them? Well, it feels like this three movies are bouncing around for sure. Yeah, and this is sort of the downturn like i so i i don't know if this if this particular area does because like i think had the man who wasn't there occurred earlier in their career it maybe would have been detrimental to it but it but because it comes off of all of these highs it's fine but the next like they needed like a no country for old men to come after it and they they don't get there because they have these two other movies in between <laughs> a part of me wonders like for these next three movies, it it definitely feels like we're mining the same well of like ideas. Um, so the next one is Intolerable Cruelty, starring George Clooney again and Catherine Data Jones. Um, this movie feels like you know exploring deceit and love and like uh, you know giving yourself up. I mean this this movie it just when you think like oh the double cross is over and like we're all fine like it really like says fuck you to love. Um, uh, but it doesn't do much culturally. Like, I, I don't think people were like clamoring for a rom-com from the Coen brothers. Um, and after that, they make the lady killers, uh, which 2004, I just got like this whole era though. Culturally is rough for yeah. everybody. It's funny too. I think the other thing about in specifically intolerable cruelty and the lady killers is both of them were work for hire which mm. is that they wrote the script for Intolerable Cruelty based off of somebody else's idea. And then it was passed around to a lot of different filmmakers, a lot of writers. Carrie Fisher worked on it. And then it came back to them. 
And the same thing sort of happened with Lady Killers, where they wrote it for Barry Sonnenfeld, and then Barry Sonnenfeld backed out, and they decided to direct it. And I wonder, I mean, this is just supposition, there's no proof to this, but I just wonder if they're not, you know, all of their stuff is so tight and so them that when they're writing for somebody else, if they're a little more loosey-goosey on that, and so then when it comes back to them, they're like... I, I don't know. I guess we got to do it this way. Like, I, I wonder if there's there's like not enough introspection for them to be like, oh, yeah, we need to tighten it up. Honestly, I was like, OK, the Coens are tackling a lot of black Southern culture that I don't know that they have yeah. their hands around. And on top of that, I don't think that these characters are as well rendered as other movies where like he knows everything about these people. Instead, in this movie, it's like you have the one guy who like was a football player and like right. Is- dumb or something and then like exactly 2007 we get no country for old men which you know i think maybe most people would say is like their masterpiece um it's it it wins all the awards it we have fucking um javier bardem being the craziest looking scariest amazing performance anton sugar classic new villain totally weird haircut totally works totally awesome that yeah, coin, yeah. I have that coin scene memorized. I love it. Another <laughs> the, brilliant exchange with a clerk. Yeah, that, I mean, that scene's great. I mean, that scene is the movie. That's the whole, like, his whole thing is chance, you know? Or, are you right. going to go this way, that way? That's that's the way it all works. It's all, a lot of that movie is happenstance, and I, I think that's brilliant. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. But again, like this. It's funny. It's sad. There's, um, I love the Tommy Lee Jones and his sheriff character. Again, another sheriff. I love my favorite part about this movie. You know, the violence was a little aggressive for me. I definitely was like, ah, but the idea that like, he's talking about the, the, the world has passed him up. He cannot handle the violence. He cannot handle, he's not smart enough. He's not, um, agile enough. And, and, the whole idea of lamenting a world that has passed you by is really powerful. Um, and and for him to like hang it up and be like, and, and he has, and again, he's like, I have this dream about my father who's like, you know, standing ahead of me with the, with the fire. Um, and again, you know, we talked about um, they love a good dream. They love this idea of, you know, uh, you, we all have like these wonderful thoughts and feelings. I mean, so like it, I think there's a lot in this movie to get, like, whatever you want to get from this movie, it's there. Um, because it is like a Western, it is action, it is um, violent and brutal. Josh, Josh uh, Rowan is fucking cool in that movie. He's very cool. Yeah. He's fucking cool, dude, man. I also want to give a shout out to Kelly McDonald, who plays yeah. Brolin's wife. I think she's so fucking good in this. The scene at the end where she finds Anton sitting in the in her room, uh, I was like, fucking just nerves of steel. Yeah. And they don't like they don't really like again, they don't show you, tell you like what exactly happened, but like you kind of get it. And I was just like, damn. They render such interesting and strong female characters. And you know, I mean, you you know, 
and there are comedies that kind of veer off here and there, but I feel like they're kind of chasing after the same wooden woman in a sense. It's like there's, it's like there's an, it's not like about it being an ideal or something like that or an ideal person, but there is this character. There's, there's an essence of a character that they keep returning to. I mean, their, their female leans do all have kind of a similar physical look as well, but there's something strong and tough about them. Um, yes. They, they are not damsels in distress by any means, even if they are, um, being looked out for by a strong male protagonist. So No Country for Old Men wins Best Picture. They win Best Director. They were the second um, duo to ever win um, Best Directors. Uh, that was after Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise for West Side Story. The Daniels just became the third for everything yes. ever all at once. Um, and they also win Best Adapted Screenplay. So casual. <laughs> <laughs> Sellouts. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is and this is when you said like they said like I guess we're the establishment now. But again, also I think it reflects the movie because they realize like oh we're getting older. You know, s- s- a lot of uh, the world is passing us up, and uh, I just think it's really fucking cool that they made a great piece of art from that tension and drama with themselves. Burn after reading is the next movie that they make. Um, what to say about Burn after reading? Um, it's hilarious. It's- it, it, it's okay <laughs> that movie makes me laugh a lot and now i'm gonna be a little biased because i was introduced to that movie when my father between the, before he'd retired and after he'd left the military he worked in dc and in the pentagon and doing all kinds of secret agent man type shit that he couldn't talk about and so i lived in the dc area around that time so it has a little bit of a special place in my heart but like so many of those scenes are punctuated and the comedy kind of comes from uh, Gavin as an editor. You'll appreciate this. Like the, the so much of the comedy comes from cutting the scene off right at the end, yeah. and that kind of provides the comedic button to it. Um, but I think everybody is like all these great dramatic actors have these comedic turns, and um, I, I I laugh out loud when I watch that movie. I, I I I'm very familiar with that film, and I did a rewatch of it right before we did this podcast. And I was just, <laughs> I was chuckling. I I will say there's definitely like. It's definitely, <laughs> you can tell that they have a lot on their minds about Bush era. I mean, obviously now, uh, everything post-Bush era as well, but like very much that George W. Bush era, post-9-11 intelligence, you know, yeah. and, and all the stuff, like, um, but yeah, it it doesn't all work for me, I will say. Uh, I saw it in the theater and was kind of like, huh, at the end, but I do think it has a great, killer final scene and that's hard to accomplish so i i am happy to admit that i don't think their specific brand of comedy is for me but (laughs) you liked raising arizona (laughs) i no, i love raising arizona is again like very like aggressively looney tunes burn after reading is like the kind of like (laughs) you know (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> which which I'm not which I'm not mad about. I read somewhere it's like you can watch these movies with the sound off and know who these characters are by their yeah. hair, by what they're wearing. I mean, Anton in No Country Roman famously has that crazy hair. You know, it says a lot about him. Um, Julianne Moore in The Big Lebowski, uh, it's like very structured hair. You know, yeah, like very severe, serious, coitus, uh, and and you know. <laughs> Uh, Tim Robbins in the Hudsucker Proxy has like the crazy big hair. He's an idea man. Like you I know mean, who these people are. Barton Fink. 
Yeah, Martin know? Fink, like eccentric. Um, and so, yeah, again, I think it just like kind of shows that they are very intentional about every single thing, what they're wearing, what their hair looks like. Um, their personalities are just like oozing out of them in all their movies. But it doesn't feel like a gimmick to me. No. It's, no. It's somehow, and I, I, maybe it's because and I, I, I really wanted to do some research. I didn't get a chance to on their the production designers that they work with because, I mean, obviously they they think so detailed uh, about mise-en-scene and composition and everything that's in their pictures. But like, I think that if if the rest of the world wasn't rendered in such a complete fashion, these haircuts would stand out to you. And other well, and they're also ultra realistic films at times. Well, it's also because I think like even their realistic films veer off into the otherworldly, you know, even like yeah. something like Raising Arizona, which has a silly concept, but at the end kind of veers off and like, you know, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which like at sometimes it's like, oh, this is normal. And then like the fucking big wave crashes on, like, you know, the, everything kind of is like we're we're in a room where the furniture is just a little mm. bit turned to the left uh, where something could anything could happen um so it, it kind of f- feels like it makes sense even when we're not like in say the hudsucker proxy where clearly we are in a heightened world um a serious man comes next in 2009 um super low budget very much them again revisiting their youth and their growing up i mean it, it was inspired by them growing up in minnesota uh, surrounded by academics um yep. I, I like this movie a lot. It was, it was weird. It was weird, but like you could tell how personal it is. It's um, very personal. Yeah, it's it's very. But like also, I I mean, I'm not Jewish, so I feel a little uncomfortable saying this. But I've, I've heard my boyfriend's Jewish, so uh, not to qualify it. But he's like, it's an incredibly Jewish movie. Like it's mm. you know, it's a lot of you know the the whole even the visiting the rabbis like the they you yeah. know they said that the young the young rabbi comes from the fact that when their mom died the they were like well we're gonna send the rabbi to your house and their dad is like in his 80s or 90s and this guy that's in his 20s shows up like yeah, you yeah know, it's like the, what yeah there, there's a lot to love for this movie i love how a lot of their movies are very big this one is just so small but it yeah. has has the weight of like being very big um i think that comes with exploring these like themes of religion they bring religion as a lot and it's it's almost like it's almost like they they were dancing around it and they couldn't avoid making a picture like this and i think you know like spielberg just recently did i think if you're a filmmaker and you write and you make works long enough you eventually have to turn the lens back on yourself yeah and i think filmmakers can avoid doing that because that can be so basic but like they're this is their life's work right i mean yep. they've dedicated their entire lives to this stuff so you know and then of course i think uh you know my my wife is jewish and uh, my grandfather is jewish i wasn't raised jewish i don't i don't particularly celebrate faith but they analyze they analyze faith and the way that that god and nature plays a role in man's life and I think that I think that that is important to do, but it's also so suburban and so kitchen table. And I yeah, think the yeah. contradiction of those things uh, is kind of like a perfect a perfect meditation for them. I also love that this movie is like a a boiling pot of you know culture clashing from all different angles. And uh, in this movie and in their next movie, True Grit, a lot of the conversation around like what kind of man are you, you know? And so yeah. they're really thinking a lot about like, are 
do you have integrity? Do you have faith? Do you believe like there's this big question and even though you're supposed to act X way according to your faith or whatever, um, you consistently run up next to fucking neighbors who suck or neighbors who you want to sleep with or, you know, people who are trying to blackmail you. Like, you could be whatever man you want to be, but, like, the rest of the world doesn't give a fuck, you know, because right. uh, shit fucking happens. And I think that's such an interesting um, – and, and and like you said, like great meditation on, on all those things. So, yeah, that's a serious man. Um, next up is True Grit uh, in 2010. <laughs> breakthrough role for Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> um, Pop star Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I remember watching this in the theater and I remember thinking like, fuck, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, um, the language of this movie is just stunning. Um, so complex, so dense. Um, but just so clever also. Um, it's a Western uh, little Haley hires the dude to go exact <laughs> revenge um, and antics ensue. I'm looking for the man who shot and killed my father, Frank Ross, in front of the Monarch boarding house. The man's name is Tom Cheney. They say he's over in Indian Territory and I need somebody to go after him. What's your name, girl? My name is Maddie Ross. We're located in Yale County. My mother's at home looking after my sister Victoria and my brother little Frank. Best go home to them. They will need help with attorney. There is a fugitive warrant out for Cheney. Government will pay you $2 for bringing him in plus 10 cents a mile for each of you. On top of that, I will pay you a $50 reward. What are you? What you got there in your poke? My God. Culture of guns. You're no bigger than a corn nubbin. What are you doing with a pistol like that? Well, I intend to kill Tom Cheney with it. Kill Tom Cheney? Well, if the law fails to do so. That piece will do the job for you if you find a high stump to rest it on and a wall to put behind you. I think it's a great adaptation. I love the mm -hmm. old movie True Grit, the old John Wayne picture. I think he won the Oscar for that. Richard Cogburn, famously, yeah. it was like, hey, you know, if you want to win an Oscar, wear the eye patch kind of a thing. <laughs> um, and, it's, and I also had I love that old movie so much that I end up reading the novel, which is not very long. And, you know, there, it's a very faithful adaptation. It's almost so close that it's kind of just it's it's the perfect kind of remake where it's bringing that story to a new audience. It's a badass looking movie. Um, the ending is cool. I love that they've given us the gift of um, creating these new not new Westerns. I mean, not like the way in which we're going to like, oh, how can we bring a Western into the 21st century? But just like a Western with all of, uh, rendered with all of the ability of the digital age. Like what a yeah. gorgeous thing to see uh, these beautiful costumes, these beautiful landscapes and Jeffrey's just badass, you know. I just like the idea of Haley like really getting these men to shape. And she's like kind of the one being like, are you are you gonna fucking like live by your word or are you right. be a bitch? <laughs> and like <laughs> these grown and these grown men are like, okay, fine, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, true grit. I mean, it, it it also she's the one who seems to recognize like how petty this all is, even though right. she's out for revenge as well. She's like, oh, like these grown men are all fucking children too, and so like right, I've right. got to be the the bigger you're, person. You're here. a drunk idiot, and you like won't stop jerking yourself off about being a fucking Texas Ranger, and it's like, right. enough. Um, next up is Inside Lewin Davis, uh, another breakout performance by Oscar Isaac. Um, I just saw this today. I had never seen this before. Oh, really? 
it's so moody it's so <laughs> it's so hot topic the movie it's <laughs> it's just so like it's, why doesn't anyone hear me sing my songs say it's it's funny so they had optioned the life story of dave and ronk uh who they bred the book of and then decided not to just to like ba- very very loosely base it on him which like you know you win and you lose in that case because I guess the people that knew Dave Van Ronk were like oh that sucks like They're why like, didn't okay, you just well. make a yeah um, I I like Inside Lewin Davis I saw Inside Lewin Davis at the New York Film Festival of the year it came out and so I was at the press conference uh, the the like specific film journalist press conference not the public one uh, and let me tell you those things are dangerous because. Film press sometimes they're in their own thing and Savage. no no one wants to explain their art less to to people than the Cohen brothers. It's just difficult sometimes because journalists think about the movie the movie that you're whatever movie you're promoting in yeah. a different way than we do. I mean, as you say, a sort of uh, heavy analysis, which isn't how we go about writing it or thinking about it when we're making it. They expect, in a certain sense, for us to do their job for them. Yeah. You know, so they sort of. We make the movie and then they sort of take it apart, but they, in interviews frequently, they want us to take it apart for them, which is mm-hmm. not sort of uh, that interesting to us. Really. And so one of my favorite moments in attending a a press conference happened where this, this one film journalist, I don't even remember who it was, uh, got up and went on this long tirade about... You know, like, I really love the scene where he's at the diner and he takes his shoe off and his sock is wet. And that's like a microcosm for life because sometimes, you know, everything could be going wrong and then your shoe's still wet and your sock is dripping and it's just ruining your day. And he goes on and probably talked for a solid five minutes and finally finished without really asking a question. And Joel Cohen just goes, oh, that's still in this cut? I thought we took that out. We got, <laughs> wow, we got to remove wow, that. Wow, 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 Sick burn. Sick burn. Sick burn. Uh, my, yeah, I, I really love Inside Lou. Inside Lou Davis is very moody. You're correct. Uh, it is their second attempt at adapting the Odyssey, a book that they still claim that they've never read. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's more loose than their previous one. I like a lot of the characters. I will say we just gave them credit for doing really good female characters. I think... Carrie Mulligan's very good in this movie. I think her character is woefully underwritten. I like yeah. she is the harpiest of all of their female characters. Yeah, yeah, I I, I would agree. And also, uh, the her character is so closely aligned with her character's function in the plot, which yeah. Yeah, doesn't provide a lot of leeway for all the things that you want from those characters. So I think that's kind of a thing there. But also, if to dig a little deeper, I think that's the whole problem with Lewin himself. So it's yeah. kind of like a meta commentary. My my favorite scene in that picture is uh, they're meeting at a cafe. The two of them are talking, and um, he's accusing her of you know be wanting to be you know successful with um, Justin Timberlake's character, and that they're gonna just make their money in the music industry and then go and have their perfect perfect suburban life. And he goes he goes honestly. It's a little careerist, and it's a little square. He's trying to blueprint a future. Move to the suburbs with Jim, have kids. That's bad. If that's what music is for you, a way to get to that place, then yeah, it's, it's, it's a little careerist. And it's a little square. And it's a little sad. I'm sad? You're the one who's not getting anywhere. 
You don't want to get anywhere. Me and Jim try. I, I want to. We get... try. You sleep on the couch. And <laughs> I, I love that because at the whole time, this character is he's like, this is my career. Don't make me sing for my supper at this table. Like, don't make me right, sing. Yeah, yeah. Well, but don't you want to be successful? It's like, no, dude. What you really want is to be a little hipster fuck and to hold on to that lifestyle. That's what you really actually want. You want right, to be yeah. this bittersweet sweet thing. But at the oh, same yeah. time, he's his own worst enemy the he, whole movie. At the same time, like that is so damn romantic too. That's what the whole scene, that's what the whole beat scene was made of. I mean, we we put that on a pedestal, but it's not a glamorous way to be. But I just like I love the idea of someone calling out someone else a careerist and a little square. Yeah. <laughs> It's also like, he's a fucking dumbass. Who's taking the check instead of royalties, idiot? (laughs) Yeah, that's he's Well, frankly, Louis, that's a little careerist and a little (laughs) square. (laughs) Honey, I'm a lot of shapes, so square ain't one of them. (laughs) Um, Inside Louis Davis. Next up, we've got, they contribute to the screenplay for Unbroken, the Angelina Jolie film. Um, Bridge of Spies co- with Spielberg. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. The they're next thing, like they- late fifties at this point, then yeah. too, as well. So I'm mean, like, you know, give- they're slowing down. Yeah. They're slowing and down. They're, they've earned it. And the, and the other thing is too is they say they write constantly, and sometimes they write just as like a thought experiment. So like, right. they have so many screenplays that have gone unmade. So right, right. Um, the next thing they make is Hail Caesar, though, um, and. That's comes out in 2016. So we're like really getting close to, you know, catching up to the present day. Um, Hail Caesar is, again, inside baseball stuff. It's very much like the drama of making movies and like what it takes for like an exec to handle stars and um, set in the 1950s. That's a fucking beautiful gowns movie to me. Like Mm, it is a gorgeous movie. Everything looks stunning. it took me a second watch to like, and like I said, I think I kind of got what they were going for more. It's still not my favorite by any means, but it like moved up a couple rungs for me at least. But yeah, I I hated this movie when I first watched it. I was like, that was fine. <laughs> Lots of cool scenes, but like, I not felt the exact lot. same way about it. I was yeah. disappointed about it. I felt like it was sort of like scenes strung together in a way. And I, I, I've seen it, I think I, I, maybe the second time for doing this podcast and I enjoyed it more. And But I will say to that end, these, their films, they make more sense watching it again. And I, and, yeah. and, and it's not like they're hiding things from you, but they're just not going out of the way that telling they're just going to lay stuff right before you, you know, I do. Right. And, and there are films in which they're being purposefully more obtuse than other movies. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to absolve them from that. Like that's the, and this is definitely one of them where like Fargo is a much more straightforward narrative. And it's funny because people still accuse, like there's the whole interstitial in Fargo where she goes and meets a former classmate and, and people are always like, what does that have to do with the movie? And it's like, that's how she realizes that William H. Macy's lying to her. Like that's, <laughs> but so, you know, sometimes you do have to spell it out for your audience. Yeah. I, I love that they give uh, Josh Brolin an opportunity to have this comedic turn, not, not, yeah. not for his whole career, but just like, you know, um, you get that in no country. And then it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's like completely out of the box, but it is like, wow, what a gift that you can get that both from that character. I, I love that at the end when, he, you know, he kept, he's come to confession. This is another movie that has that, that cyclical, cyclical nature to it. Yeah. Um, and and he, he says, father, is it, a, if something's easy to do, is that a sin? And I, for me, that was like deeply 
relatable. I, I, I have to say, you know, this may be a little personal for this moment, but like sometimes I find myself choosing the harder path just because it's harder. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that there's, even though he's like, I don't know, do I like these people? Is it noble? Is it good? He's trying to live a good life and all these people are not living good lives, but it's, right. it's a hard thing to do. Very few people can very many people watch these things. Many people want to be in these things and very, very few people get to, and the business has only gotten harder to break into. In my opinion, so many people are trying to do it and there's so many access and the business is as in a moment of crazy evolution, I think for the better, but it's an incredibly challenging moment. Maybe 20 years from now is going to be different in different ways. Maybe we're carving a path out for new people, but I love the idea that it's like, I like doing this because it ain't easy to do and I'm good at it. And I think that, <laughs> and, 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 and deciding that that's a holy thing is kind of really beautiful to me. I think I, all of that. Yes. And then like, if you zoom out a little bit more, it's like, are the Coens okay? <laughs> <laughs> like they yeah. made this like huge, enormous movie about like all these assholes in Hollywood who are doing horrible things, whatever, to make beautiful things, beautiful art. Um, but uh, again, it's like if, if this movie to me felt maybe the most navel gazely, like they're really going through something, feeling a yeah. type of way, like uh, about Hollywood. And, you know, I mean, it like, like I said, the Raising Arizona was maybe their last bit of optimism at the end. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah, like 30 years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, God bless the sailor dancing number. Uh, God give, bless. give me my magic mic in 1951, please. As as somebody who used to tap dance, 15 years of tap and jazz, uh, I will say that that's not an easy tap routine. And he learned it in three weeks because he's also not a tap dancer. And wow. so that's a really because tap dancing is very different than like magic miking about. <laughs> I, I was watching that movie with um, frequent guest Samantha Stallard, and she was like, what if we just watched that movie instead? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Last two things. We, you know, we get um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is, goes to Netflix. Anthology. Um, you know, yeah, a, lot of, a, a, a lot, lot of people of... claim that it was supposed to be a TV show. That has been proven false. And so just if you think, but like, I, I still see people talking about how it was the, written as a TV show and then they decided to make it into a film. That's completely false. The Coen brothers have said the script did not change from the moment it started in development till the moment the movie was filmed. So classic Coens. Um, I got to say, I love Tim Blake Nelson. He's yeah. so good. Him and, o and um, Oh brother, where art thou? So good. He's great here. He was the only person on the set of Oh brother, where art thou? Who had read the Odyssey because he was a classics major in college. Love that. <laughs> um, very much a, a a think piece, if you will, to get through all of these, um, you know, scenes or, or short stories i think some of them are stronger than others yeah um but um like also beautiful is it a think piece because i didn't think much of it <laughs> Gag. wow uh ben, ben's about to fucking turn this off meeting. i've mentioned i've mentioned <laughs> i've mentioned it a couple times i enjoyed it i was just deeply disappointed by it when i first saw it i was so excited i was like oh my god coen brothers on netflix coming out cool and i thought it was going to be a whole and i was kind of disappointed by the chapter nature of it and then it ends yeah. on such a con confusing um kind of metaphysical yeah. note um yeah. and but i mean it gave us the great 
theme of like you know first time with the guy first being time and everything like that yeah i mean so exactly. i mean any any movie that can deliver a meme is is, is worth a while um I I, I I think i do like the prospector story i think is the my prospector favorite. one yeah. is the favorite is the best one it's the best one absolutely and i will say it's the best one because i was like oh fuck they're not gonna like the coen brothers famously do not like letting people um win uh and i thought <laughs> yeah oh no he's not gonna win but in a surprise twist he says surprise bitch you've seen the last of me um and i just so, love yeah. tom waits so good um and then finally you know uh, just in 2021 i guess last year um we get um joel by himself doing the tragedy of macbeth um which i i, I have seen macbeth before not this one um i will say that i did fall asleep fully oh. fell asleep watching this film it is a beautiful film great acting but just so quiet and uh, this is where my nerdery comes in because my complaint about this movie is that there's no and i i liked it there's no breathing room it's like it's just it it feels like um shakespeare trimmed to its bones where it's just like this thing happens and this thing happens and this thing happens and this thing happens and this thing happens beautiful to look at like you said performance is great but i was just like like there's no there was no room for me to be like can i contemplate what the characters are doing for a moment can i it's i i I think this perhaps is maybe their most inaccessible film like i i just don't think that there's any entry point for a casual moviegoer to come in here. I mean, like, I guess maybe Denzel Washington is it, but like he's in his full fucking Shakespeare bag, you know, like yeah. there is no place for someone to like come and be like, oh, wow. I mean, most of my time watching this was like, how did they make it look this way? Because this is a fucking crazy. It's all, it's all sets. It's all. I mean, that was the whole. The inspiration yeah. is Carl Dreyer's uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. It's all meant to look like that. It's all German expressionist touches. And and I, I don't know. It's very cool looking. But I, I get what you're saying. Like, I do. Evo Van Hove. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder if uh, if if it went to theaters, how it would have it did. Played. Oh, I mean, yeah, but it, but not in a it, way that like in that Netflixy kind of run. We're gonna right, do this right. prestige yeah, kind Apple, of moment. To yeah, Apple TV theaters. was like, here's four theaters. Like I but, always said that because Shaddy, my good friend, went and he told me he's like, I stayed for 15 minutes and then I left. I wow. just couldn't and. He's not a dumb person. No. It was just like it's hard to kind of like commit to very um dense. I mean it the language is dense, the visuals are dense, everything is just like kind of impenetrable. But again, gorgeous movie. Um but the, all that being said, like that kind of like catches us up to now, you know. Um Ethan put out Jerry Lee Lewis Trouble in Mind, you know, um like Gavin said at the beginning. Um they have a bunch of screenplays and projects that they like have started and stopped on um that they've said you know like who knows if they'll ever happen or not um quickly wanted to mention they they do have their own production company uh mike zoss productions um they started making their movie uh they started that production company uh with oh brother where art thou um and yeah I, i i don't know like what else there is to say about um, this like crazy run of movies it's i think it's 12 movies um and it's really interesting to see now you know we're in they're in streaming world like i don't know if a big studio is ever going to give them money to make right th- their movies again um but they have so much cultural cachet i can't imagine that it's this there's not more 
in the pipeline? I was sad when I, you know, the band kind of broke up sort of mm, because mm. not because I thought the spell was broken and that they were matching together or something. And I, I have, I have complex feelings about directing uh, partners. Uh, I film is a hugely collaborative process, but I, I, it's a little bit mystical to me, but they're brothers. They share one brain in that way. But the reason that the reason that I was sad is because I was worried that I wouldn't see more from them necessarily, you know, and, but I think that as you move through life, I think it's, I think it's the ultimate destination that they have to get to uh, is, is, is as they grow, you're going to eventually have to not grow apart, but just you're going to have to put your own voice in your own direction and become more distinct out there. So I'm, I'm glad, I hope, I hope they continue both to get, maybe they'll come back together. Uh, yeah. Maybe not. I don't, I don't actually know the reasons for their, uh, you know, famously amicable separation. Um, I hope that's just artistic. I hope that we get to see them make movies for a very long time. I think that artists only get better with age um, actors, writers, people that really are prolific with it. I think it's a gift and a joy to see people that have become real masters of their craft or at least exploration of their own point of view. So I just, I hope that we get to see them make a film when they're quite aged or something like that. Yeah. Also, LOL, it's not 12 movies. I just counted. It's like fucking 20. So (laughs) fact checking myself. Um, But okay. I think it's time for us to get into our picks. Why don't we get into our one star reviews? Ben, as our guest, you have the pleasure of going first. You are the mega super fan, so I'm very interested in hearing what what didn't ring the bell for you. We talked about a few other pictures that were, you know, commonly unpopular, but honestly, Raising Arizona is one star for me. It, uh, wow. I, I know, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, I think that like uh, I come to expect so much from their leads. Nick Cage is great, but it just didn't quite add up for me. Um, I love their execution on it. It's not my kind of comedy. I also didn't really love the world that they created because they're kind of nasty people a little bit. Like the side, <laughs> the side characters aren't as aren't as fully detailed as in some of their other films, and I find that a little bit disappointing. But I think that's largely because it's one of their earlier works. I think they get better with age. I think they get better with practice. Raising Arizona feels like an outlier to me, uh, even as not just because it's a comedy, but uh, you know, one star. I feel that's such a harsh, but uh, I'm, yes, I will give my one star. The big giant star to raise your son. <laughs> Hi, it's two in the morning. What's that smell? We don't always smell this way, Miss McDonough. I was just explaining to your better half here that when we were tunneling out, we happened to hit the main sewer line. Dumb luck that, and we followed that. You to- mean you busted out of jail? No, ma'am. Uh, we released ourselves on our own recognizance. What Evel here is trying to say is that we felt the institution no longer had anything to offer us. My lord, he's cute. He's a little outlaw. You can see that high. Now, listen, you folks can't stay here. Gavin, what about you? Oh, I mean, I think Gavin. if I, I, I think if I had to pick one, you know, it it kind of comes from that era of the intolerable cruelty, and but the, I mean, the worst of the worst is Lady Killers for me. Um, I'm also a big fan of Ealing Studios, which they remade 
uh, so the, I'm kind of biased in that level. But I think it boils down to exactly what you were talking about, Louis. About there's a culture clash here. It feels very strange to have them commenting on this black Southern culture. It feels really hollow. I mean, Marva Munson. I know she received uh, a, a ton of accolades. Irma P. Hall, who played this character, for playing this role. But it's it's a hard role to swallow. I like what they're doing. I like that they're like she. You know, there's a lot of gags that you have to be a little more aware of. Like she's donating to a famously racist college. Like yeah. that's the joke in it. But it's it's like somewhere between the highbrow and the lowbrow. It all gets lost. It all kind of feels like noise, um, as we mentioned before. Um, Lady Killers is a movie about a, a band of thieves that decides to break into a bank by tunneling into the bank or, or the, not a bank, a, a casino, casino by tunneling yeah. into, into a casino underneath the house of this older woman. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, it just doesn't work for me. I actually think Tom Hanks is really bad here, too. Not his best. I don't, I don't, yeah, it's he's trying. He's trying real hard to do that William Faulkner thing. It's it's real not great. Um, which is not to say that he can't do characters. It's just maybe he shouldn't between this and Elvis. Wow. <laughs> um, wow, 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 wow. But uh, yeah, I just, it it just didn't really work for me. He plays one bitch barrel full of a sack, but ain't that right, Lump? I'm telling you, he can tear it up, right, Lump? I ain't nobody playing a sack book like Lump right there. He, don't be shy, Lump. Don't be shy. Lump, that boy, he go at it like it was some pussy. Oh, shit! Mind your mouth. This is a Christian house, boy. No hibbity hop language in here. Sometimes it's the only way. Now listen, you ain't gonna hit I'm trying to help you, boy. Better yourself. So you should. Madam Your Wayne is so far transported by his love of the music of the early Renaissance. Don't make me know never mind he transported. You been smoking. I'll second the motion with Lady Killers. Like there are other movies that I don't vibe with. And I don't think I, uh, this is not my, like I really did not respond to burn after reading. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> like, I honestly uh, think that's a, that's a, a, a genuine. Okay. Reaction. Lady Killers. I think um, they're just, they took, I, I don't know if it's them taking the swings or if, like they're, like you mentioned, there was other people involved in this film, but like, it it feels just so unlike them and the places that they have inserted themselves feel very clumsy to me i was like oh he's commenting on this gargoyle thing and like it's just like so clear like the bird's gonna fucking like everything's so obvious in this movie yeah um and um yeah all the things that you said gavin it it, it's it i i if unfortunately it feels like a fucking 2004 movie you know like they wanted to have a little bit of like hip-hop culture yeah and like <laughs> you know the idea that marlon wayans is like oh i can't because it reminds me of my mom and i was like what i don't know anything about you like all you've been doing this entire time is playing like a caricature honestly of you know like rough and tumble gangster guy right and it, so this movie tries to like have its cake eat it to whatever that saying is this is that movie um was there anything else that you guys thought like perhaps is a lesser um cohen um I, c- collab 
I, I know we probably disagree on this, Benjamin, but uh, like I mentioned, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I think anthology films are really hard, just okay. genuinely really hard. And I think they're only as strong as their weakest entry. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple really weak entries in it. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, the actual little story that kind of makes up for it, him kicking the table yeah. and the gunshots in the head. It's that kind of like, good. if only they could have like had that both at the beginning and the end of the movie in some sense. But you know, it makes I me- read a, I read a really good analysis of that as being like, in a way that's also commenting on it, like because it's a big American myth, it's also commenting on America's international position where they're like, it's a loudmouth guy who comes in and constantly talks about themselves. He's the person who shoots first. He's the, you know, say, like kills people in a violent way and then sings a fun song about it. So everybody will forget about it. And I was just like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> I, w- I would see a full length, full length feature film about Buster Scruggs. Like, I, I thought that's what I was going to get. Same. Yeah. Same. I even like I even like when he like you know eats it at the end and his like little angel wings come out. Yeah, I was like, duet. this is fun. This is fun. <laughs> um, but all right, let's get into a better place um, like Buster and <laughs> talk about our five star picks. All right, Ben, what is your number one five star review fave Coen Brothers This is like stupid hard because I feel like it's a there's like three of them I just want to kind of wrap up together. You know, <laughs> I, I was tempted to go with um, Burn After Reading because it's just it's an enjoyable watch. has a little place in my heart, as I've mentioned, with my like family situation. But I'm going to have to go with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, mm-hmm. Because, Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I might have I said Burn After Reading to get people to go check it out or something in that way. Give it a little bit more love. But A Brother Where Art Thou is so complete. All these side characters are so good. Uh, you know, a Nick DeSensor staker once. Oh, there's a good boy. You know, I mean, it's just and I, and I love that it's a musical. I'm obsessed with movie musicals. I love that it comes close to that. I have bought that CD when it came out. I wore it out. I think it's totally wow. complete. Um, I I love George Clooney in it. I love the trio of them together. Um, I think that if you only saw one Coen Brothers film, it may not be the quintessential Coen Brothers film, but don't miss that one. <laughs> daddy? He ain't our daddy. Hell, I ain't. What's this Warby Gals? Your name's McGill. No, sir, not since you got hit by that train. What are you talking about? I wasn't hit by any train. Mama said she was hit by a train. Bluey, nothing left. Just a grease spot on the L and N. Damn it, I wasn't hit by any train. That's right, now Mama's got us back to war. That's a maiden name. You got a maiden name, Daddy? No, Daddy don't have a maiden name, she... That's your misfortune. That's right, and now Mama's got a new bow. He's a suitor. My favorite part is when they think that John Turturro has turned into a frog. Horny toad. <laughs> yeah and like and then john goodman like kills the frog it's just and they're they're all so funny they're all so funny all the interactions holly hunter as the wife who like is getting remarried and like they have a troop of girls uh it's just it's he's a suitor damn (laughs) paterfamilias that's just like a very good way like it is a complete film, like top to bottom. Yes. yes. Every single thread uh, of, of storytelling in that is so good. You want to talk about um, your like layered metaphors, right? So Odyssey, in the Odyssey, they, they run into the witch Circe, who turns uh, Odysseus's men or Ulysses' men into pigs. And somebody pointed out, they're like, you know, 
just because they think those sirens turn him into a frog doesn't mean that it's not the Odyssey because those ladies did technically turn them into pigs by telling the police where they were. Yeah, true. They turned them into the pigs. <laughs> I was like, damn, wow, that is so layered. Oh my god. That is, that is, you should be put in jail for that. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That is good. That I is, probably will be. That is good. <laughs> what a great scene, though. They're also just slapping oh, yeah. the clothes on the rocks and they're singing. I was like, okay, hot. Yeah. Yes. That's such a good movie. Yes. Um, all right, Gavin, what about you? Um, I'm losing the poll this week. I know it. That's fine by me. Um, I I th- I think it's harder to pick a bad after doing this. Mm. Nobody does the show like we do. Nobody does the like this many movies in this short amount of time. Like really intensive. Um, and I th- I think I ended up coming away being like, you know, I really love more Coen Brother movies than I dislike. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think a lot of them are so good and so nuanced. And for me. I think it really is a serious man. I, I And I know that that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea, but I think it is so, it's so funny that you bring up the navel gazy stuff because this could get to a navel gazy area. And I feel like it never does, but it right. is so layered and so nuanced. And I think the scene that really sold it for me this time was, you know, th- this is a movie about a, a man who can't fight, as you mentioned before, he can't fight the forces of nature. Things are going to go wrong no matter what, which is why it's like, incredibly important that this man is a mathematician right he's a person who's constantly trying to solve things and the universe is like no we're pretty random but i think the scene that sold it for me this time was there's a scene late in the film where he's talking to his brother played by richard kind Mm. and everything has gone wrong for michael stuhlberg's character his wife is leaving him for cy abelman cy abelman up and dies and now his wife is no longer leaving him uh he's being blackmailed by a student uh there's all these bits but richard kine has been arrested for soliciting at a bar he's you know this closeted this sad closeted man with this cyst on the back of his neck and now he's not even being allowed to play cards. And there's this great scene where Michael Stuhlberg's like, everything in my life is shit. <laughs> and Richard Kind's like, I can't even play cards. Like, you think your life is shit. I can't, I literally can't do anything. Arthur, you've got to pull yourself together. <laughs> it's all shit, Larry. It's all shit. Arthur, don't use that word. <laughs> it's just fucking shit. Arthur. Look at all of the hush time it's given you. What has he given me? He hasn't given me shit. Arthur, what do I have? I live with the Jolly Roger. You have a family. You have a job. Hashem hasn't given me shit. He hasn't given me buckets. It's not fair to blame Hashem, Arthur, please. Sometimes, please calm down. Sometimes you have to help yourself. Hashem hasn't given me shit. Now I can't even play cards. <laughs> I I think that to me is it's like everything seems bad. Everything always seems bad. There's always somebody who has it worse than you. There's yeah. always, you know, and I I think that was the key to me this time where I was like, oh yeah, like because the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, you know, he is having a really tough time. He is having really and I was like, you know what? everybody's having a really tough time. Like if you put yourself in the position of the father of the, of the student that he failed, that is willing to blackmail to get his student. Like if you put 
I, you know, I think the only person that wasn't having a bad time was Cybelman until he died. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cy was about to have it all. Look at the parking was. lot, Larry. <laughs> exactly. He's so, so good. Um, that movie's it's so funny. It's so tragic. You know, it's biblical. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's, you know, about fate. It's about luck. Um, yeah, I love I love everything in that movie from frame one till the end. I think it's the perfect combo of this movie. I'm glad you brought up Spielberg earlier, Ben, because I think he could learn something from the way that they they did their, which is, you know, I didn't hate his film, but like it was so neat and tidy. Mm. And this is like, this is both ordered and messy at the same time. He should have made the and, Cy and Abelman's. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Louis, what is your five-star review? I think um, it is a credit to the Coen's filmmaking that I was going back and forth between a lot and like the reviews are mixed because my five-star review is Raising Arizona. Um, (laughs) I, I think like it is the perfect encapsulation of these people who, uh, High is is played by um, Nicolas Cage, and he's a bad guy. He keeps, you know, getting into trouble with the police. He falls in love with Ed, Edwina, who's a police officer who books him every time. Um, they eventually get married, and and their their life is like you know not great, but they love each other a lot. But they are desperate for a child, especially Ed, and. Um, they decide to do something crazy. They are desperate enough to do something crazy, um, even for uh, a criminal, even for, you know, this police officer. She, They try and have a kid together and they can't. And she is so distraught. She, Her life is over. She drops her career. Um, and they go on this crazy epic journey. They're his two friends who escape jail, c- kind of crash, you know, their place. Um, her more like high society friends come along and the funniest scene is just Francis McDormand asking if they're going to get the dip tech. <laughs> <laughs> gotta get the dip tech. <laughs> if you should start the bank account, we gotta start the bank account. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, and, and the idea of <clears throat> being a, a human adult is so much fucking hard work mm. and doing it quote unquote, right. You know, having enough money to this man is stealing for like basic, basic fucking things to live. And but they are so desperate to have a child and they they even have to steal a fucking child. Like, (laughs) yes, everything about their life, you know, is so difficult and, and they're trying to keep up with the Joneses. But also being dragged down by like, you know, riffraff, um, the, and and it's so fun. I mean, this movie is like capitalism, like the fucking people they steal the baby from. She says they have too many babies that they can't even keep track of. They have too many they don't even need, you know. And it's like the whole idea, like the people that have a lot of money, have a lot of kids, have a lot of room, have all the options and life. Whereas High and Ed don't have 
anything and all they want is this kid or they want a kid thank you honey but you really didn't have to do this you son of a bitch you're acting like a mad dog what if me and the baby been picked up turn left dear nathan jr would have been accessory to armed robbery no it ain't armed robbery if the gun ain't loaded what kind of home life is this for Todd? Like you supposed to be an example what did this man uh-huh i never postured myself as a three-piece suit type turn right honey we got a child now everything's changed well nathan jr exists me for what i am and I think you better head too. You know, honey, I'm okay, you're okay, that there's what it is. I know, but honey... See, I come from a long line of frontiersmen and... Oh, here it is, dear, turn here. Frontiersmen and outdoor cops. I'm not gonna live this way, huh? It just ain't family life. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. They literally have nothing. All they have is this dream, and the dream is not for money or success, it's just for a family together. Um, and... I think the like closing line is like, if not in Arizona, then somewhere else, <laughs> maybe it was Utah. Like it's, it's, it's kind of a joke, right? Because in Utah, Mormon families are famously very large. Um, and like for them though, in Arizona, there's nothing for them. They're in the literal desert of life. I just love also like Holly Hunter, who's maybe one of my favorite actresses, when she's like telling him like, hi, I need a baby. I need a baby. <laughs> hi, my life is up. You don't understand. And she's just like so, I mean, she has this wonderful energy. I love seeing her. I loved watching all these movies and, and seeing her in those little bit roles that came around. But, you know, she really is a force in this movie. So, um, yeah, I I think you and me, Ben, are in opposite spectrums of like <laughs> what comedy we like in the Coen's universe. But that's what I love. About, they're able to do it all. Yeah, but, you know, I just want to say, listening to what you just said, you, you were you quite persuaded me. honestly to seeing the side of that film that is uh hugely sentimental and deeply meaningful and if if i could borrow one of your five stars i'm gonna add two stars to that one (laughs) there you go there you go there you go um uh yeah i mean and like this is crazy because like literally none of us picked fargo big lebowski right right no country for old men like there is this oh embarrassment of riches (laughs) in 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 the work that they produce so um for folks out there who maybe haven't seen all these things, like they're just all worth taking a watch. Um, so before we get out of here, let's do our mixed reviews review. My one star review was 2004's Lady Killers. And my one star review was also 2004's Lady Killers. My one star review is 1987's Raising Arizona. And plot twist, my five star review was <laughs> 1987's Raising Arizona. My five star review was 2009's A Serious Man. And my five-star review, review is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou from 2000. Very good. Let's get into our fast forward. It's hard to determine what they're going to do next. Obviously, uh, you know, Ethan's still out there doing his Broadway thing and, and, and <laughs> writing plays. And Joel seems to not want to give up the ghost uh maybe they'll come back to i feel like this is not a permanent split i feel you know no there's no way but but you do have to understand they've spent their entire working lives doing this making these movies i i i think it was um i just forgot his name the guy that directed tar Mm. early you know tar was his third movie and he says he might be done 
Oh, yeah. You know, he... And because it's it's hard, it takes a lot out of you, especially when you're older. I am very happy, Ben, to hear you say, you know, that you like watching people you age and the work matures them. There's a lot of people who have a reverse opinion. Quentin Tarantino often says that he thinks director's worst work comes when they're older. I disagree. I think there's plenty of good films. I think you kind of have to age with the material. I think that's mm. sort of what he's leaving out because, you know, Quentin Tarantino is just never grown up so <laughs> right yeah and i think uh, you know they're really i mean right now especially like fucking joel made the shakespeare of his wet fucking dreams right like yeah. he's <laughs> leaning into the academic they've already made their you know fablemans they've already like turned inwards they've made movies about making movies i i feel like you know the 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 special sauce for the coens really seems to be when they find something that they want to adapt i mean like they are inspired by art. You, these mm. these are guys who probably fucking read everything nonstop. all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I I I agree. There's no way that they're like you know like they didn't break up. They just like mm. we've been doing this forever, and we are literal brothers. Um, Joel, I believe, um, lives in Marin county on the west coast and ethan lives in new york so they have some space now um i think you know when something hits i think also they they probably have a room full of screenplays that are just sitting around yeah Um, they should not give them to george clooney i did watch suburbicon for this it's really bad (laughs) did we watch suburbicon for julianne moore also uh we did i i didn't watch it then i i waited because i i knew it by reputation alone but yes but yeah it's yeah, not it's, their fault. He like mish, he like Frankenstein it with another script that he wrote, and you can tell that those two things right. are very much at odds. So it's I funny. won't blame the Coens for that. It's funny. Like I feel like the Coens should be precious about their writing because they just have such an extreme vision um, for what I mean. Like I said, their movies are so thoroughly detailed. Yeah, from the hair to the costumes to the mise en scène, everything is so well thought out. So when they give away a script. We get fucking Suburbicon. Uh, um, so I, I have faith that they'll come back. And, you know, in the meantime, Ethan will, you know, I, I would love to go see one of Ethan's plays. I, I don't know yeah. if he has anything like going on right now, but um, and who knows what Joel's going to do? I mean, fucking Francis McDormand is hotter than ever in like Hollywood world. Um, you know, a lot of the people they work with are some of the, the greats. Yeah, they're certainly not hurting for people to work with. I mean, when you can show up to a Coen Brothers movie and fucking Justin Timberlake is in it. Like know. You, you know that they can just land anybody. The... Do we think Justin Timberlake auditioned for the lead character in that? I hope they fucking made him audition. <laughs> I hope I hope they called him back four times. No, no. no. <laughs> do you think do you think they made him do you think he auditioned though for the Oscar Isaac role? Oh because probably apparently apparently they, they at first wanted to hire a, a musician who could act. Right. And then they realized Oh, we need an actual actor for this, um, and I and I would love the conversation of being like Justin. Thank you so much for that um, seventh audition. We're not going to give you the lead, but we do have this like secondary guy who has like a couple scenes that we'll let you ban. I think all of their films really meet the moment very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have come to a new moment, a very new moment that we're all still grappling with, and I would like to see. I look forward to their work. And I look forward to watching a piece that comes from them maybe sometime in the next decade, next next five, eight years, that speaks to this new moment that we're in 
I would like to see these mature artists reveal for us a little bit of ourselves. Uh, yeah. We're in a very strange new world in all kinds of ways. Uh, yeah. Post pandemic, politically, socially, et cetera. So I would really like to see them confront some of the newness of now and see how they put it through their particular lens. Yeah, I love that. The idea of like, what makes a good man right now? You know, like yeah. I love this idea. And like, and to your point, Ben, about they they love writing about uh, common man and artists in the now. And yeah, that's a very good point. And I, I'm excited even thinking about what that movie is, because if you can make like, you know, they clearly were affected by the Bush era, but even I'm thinking about like True Grit and A Serious Man, we're thinking about, you know, how 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 does one be good? How does one, you know, survive in these like very troubled times? Uh, yeah. Well, that, I, I, think, I think one of the ways you do it is by having a podcast where you take a deep dive into <laughs> as many movies as you can watch and offer that to the world, y'all. Well, Gavin, Gavin's the serious man here. Uh, I'm the Buster Scruggs, clearly. Uh, but I think that I think that wraps up the Coen Brothers beautifully, and also you know inflates both Louis and my head. But um, but thank you so much, Ben. This is your moment. This is you have your moment where you get to talk about anything you want. I'm so proud that you were you won one of the awards when you were yeah. at the Bowery Film Festival, and it's just so cool what you're doing and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very happy to to see your work. It's it's good. It's good. You know. So I, tell the folks where can they find you, Ben? I appreciate that. Well, I mean, if you want to be one of my dozens of followers on Instagram, you can find me at <laughs> at Benjamin Lawrence Myers. Um, you know, Zero Method was a passion project of mine. It's a pilot pitch. It's had a very successful run. I'm working on pitching it around uh, this uh, this spring and summer. Um, I've just started developing a new, that was a science fiction piece. I like to zigzag around very much like the Coens. My next piece is very much a kitchen table uh, dramedy about a um, our, an army vet who is struggling with PTSD and, uh, and raising a young family of two in a struggling suburban household, working class family. And uh, as she tries to deal with her PTSD through DIY psychosyllabin therapy and a failing American system. Um, but I am I'm constantly trying to write and work on different projects. Um, I, I love working with actors. It's the great passion of mine. Um, acting is something that I've always had an interest in. And I, I try to do it from time to time when I can. Um, but, you know, my great hope is to, uh, is to, you know, be a showrunner and bring those stories to the world. I love investing in characters. Um, I hope I, 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 next uh, later this fall, I'm, I'm looking to uh, write my first feature film, which I'm not cool. taking on the challenge of doing. Um, and, you know, taking my projects around to festivals gives me the great opportunity to bump into other artists. I think that there's nothing better than uh, to go to a film festival and see independent films because it gives you an incredible reflection of the zeitgeist and where people are uh, when you see a collection of movies. Um, I love doing this thing. I it's it's there's no giving up on it now. You know, I'm I'm 36. It's it's my sole aim is to go out there and try to be able to tell original stories uh, from my point of view. Um, I very much relate to the Coens and their their challenge of balancing the commercial with the artist inside yourself. Um, I think that if I don't make it, whatever anyone could say making it is, if I could just be buried with one good 
good screenplay, one good reel, one good thumb drive with a with a movie on it that nobody <laughs> saw. Uh, I aim to do good work with good people, and I'm always looking to raise the bar. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to share some of these thoughts here. And I'm just looking to grow my craft, and uh, I'm slowly gathering an army of people who uh, – you know, feel similarly to me in that and, and share my vision about how we want to tell stories and uh, how we navigate this new moment in Hollywood. I hope that people see my work and nod yes and, and give me some chances <laughs> to do it to, so I can have the resources to make these things. And um, I think at the end of the day, art's a mirror for ourselves. It's the way it's making movies is, is the way I go about understanding the world. And um, I guess that's Ben Myers for you. Thank you, Ben, so much. We really appreciate you coming on. Good luck with Zero Method and all your future endeavors. We so much enjoyed um, going. I mean, this is the most, like, critically acclaimed episode, I feel like, (laughs) subject we've had in a long while. Uh, But, uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks for taking on. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. I really appreciate it. And and honestly, like, you're doing it. And that's the the whole half the battle is just getting it together to do it but speaking of doing it if you want to contact us you can always find us on twitter at at the mixed reviews for us on facebook just type in the mixed reviews you can always email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com we're on instagram at the underscore mixed underscore reviews and just like I mentioned at the top of the episode, you can always leave a review for our episodes on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Amazon, Audible. And if you do stop by there, leave us a five-star rating, write us a little review. We'll read it on the show. Join our Patreon. We have yeah, a Patreon. Have... Bonus yeah, stuff. We... Bonus stuff. We just sent a prize out to Roy um, for winning our Oscars match. But um, yeah, we, we love having the discourse on the Discord. Yeah, that sounds Uh, right. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, But thank you guys, uh, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye.